Um, Happy New Year. It is so good to be with you guys this morning. Um, I hope you are doing well. Uh, My name is Thomas, uh, if you have not met me before, but it is a joy to be here and you have made it. It is 2024. Uh, Let's go. If you have a Bible, go to Daniel chapter 1. And as you're going there, I want to tell you about my upbringing a little bit. I've shared this before, but I was born just outside of Chicago. I was born in the Midwest, and that's where I grew up. I grew up, um, right, just uh, it, with real winters and snow and, and, and cold that lasted for about six months out of the year and real changes of color in the fall. It was, a, it was a, a different experience. And I remember when I was about 15 years old, I was in high school, going into my sophomore year of high school, my, my, I found out my parents, you know, my dad was uh, changing jobs and we were moving to Houston, Texas. And very different climate. Let me tell you. I remember, I used to mow my lawn every day and my, I would be like, I'm gonna sleep in you know, that's what I would do in Illinois, and I would sleep in. I'm like, I'm just, I can do it at 11, noon, 1. And I remember mowing the lawn, and I was like, after lunch, Mom, I'm going to go mow the lawn. And I tried to mow it in the summer in Houston, and I almost died. I was like, what is the sun trying to do to me? Right, like, what, like, what, what have I done to offend? Who, you know, like, it, it was just so intense and hot and humid, and people were, like, nice to me on the street. They're like, howdy. And I'm like, what? What's your angle, man? Like, what are you talking to me about? Uh, right? There was a different culture and an immersion. I remember, like, there's just barbecue everywhere and tacos and, and, and just, I, I actually had Chick-fil-A for the first time moving to Texas. I, I had never experienced it growing up. And I was like, what is this? Manna from heaven or, or whatnot, you know? And it was just this new experience. And, and what was really interesting, when I first got into school, I remember showing up to high school and I had a Midwestern accent, and, and, and I really have kind of mellowed out on that. I've lost that. But I, people would be like, say this word again, you know, say the word notebook. And I would say it, and they're like, oh, man, Chicago, you know. And, and, uh, and, and people would call me that at school. They'd be like, ah, Chicago, man, what's going on? And, and man, but what happened over time, as I lived in Texas, something strange began to take place. I actually began to change how I speak and talk and the things that I liked. Like my, the way I spoke changed and I started to use words like y'all and howdy, right? And, and, and I, would, I would have different tastes. Like I, w- I would be drawn to Topo Chico and tacos and, and there was food that I would crave that's different. And now I'm like, it's 50 degrees outside. I'm like, it's really cold. Right, like where, where's the summer, right? And I wear long sleeves on an 80, on a, on a brisk like 89 degree day because it's too cold out, right? I have changed by where I live. And that's a real principle in this life, right? We are actually very influential as people, right? We are influenced by what we are surrounded with. And we morph and change based on the influences that are coming into our life. And if you're saying to yourself, like, no, I'm above that, like, I'm a strong, yes, just look at how much maroon at A&M there is, right? Yeah, the fact that you just whoop and that's normal to you, like, that's a cultural influence. You're like, maroon, it matches every color, right? It's just, that's, it was like God rested and then blessed maroon and white. Like, that, like that's not a normal experience in other parts of the world. But because we live here, 
we are influenced, right? We, we, we adopt the practices of the places where we reside. Now, I bring that up because as we start in 2024, there is a battle for your soul taking place. You live in this world, and the world wants to shape you and, and tell you how to think and to act and to inform you, and it is very easy to be shaped by the place where we live in this moment in time. Regardless of where we are in terms of our relationship with Jesus, whether we are a faithful follower of Jesus, or this is all new to us, there are influences in our world that want to shape us and change us. And we're susceptible to that. Uh, I, I, I want to talk about this. There's David Kinnaman, who's the, the CEO of Barna, released a study. First in 2011, he found that 59% of Christian young adults dropped church in their 20s. Eight years later, he did a similar study. So this is now 2019. He released a study called Faith for Exiles. That number jumped to 64%. And so there is this trend of people becoming more like the world in our culture, where church is seen as something that is even outdated. And we are, can be susceptible to those thoughts. He found that only one-third of people who identify themselves as believers could be categorized as resilient disciples. Now, his definition of resilient disciples is this. They have made a commitment to follow Jesus. They actually believe that Jesus was crucified and raised to conquer sin. They're involved in a faith community. They strongly affirm that the Bible is inspired by God and contains truth, and they express a desire to shape the broader society as an outcome of their faith. Only a third of people, not just in the population, but those who identify as Christians, he found, could be categorized that way. So I bring this up, not to scare us, but to get us to ask this question, how do we become resilient? How do we become people in the face of influence, in the face of adversity, in the face of attack from the outside? How do we become people who are resilient, who do not give in to ideas about how we should think and live and work in this world? How do we remain faithful to the call that Jesus has placed before each of us? I think there's no better time to talk about this than at the start of the new year. All of us are maybe reevaluating and thinking about what do I want to be different about 2024 compared to 2023? I know many of us say, good riddance with that last year. I'm ready for a new start. And what I want to do today is get us to say, one of the things I want to see happen in my life this year is that I remain or become resilient. I become resilient in my faith, not shaped by the world. Now, I mentioned we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. I want to say one more thing. What I am talking about today is not people who just avoid hardship, right? There's a theological term for people who avoid everything difficult. It's called soft, right? That's not, what I'm, that's not someone who is resilient, someone who's just like, yeah, I don't have any hardship or trouble. 
Someone who's resilient can withstand the forces of this world in their fullness and remain who they are, remain intact, remain faithful. How do we become like that? So if you have a Bible, go to Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. Because this gives us a great picture, an example of someone who is seeing the forces of this world try to shape them. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. I just want to stop right there. That is a dramatic opening line. An outside king, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonian empire at this moment, comes to Jerusalem and besieges it, which is not like a, hey, we're here, you know, you want to like exchange goods. Besieging a city is to surround it and choke it and to force the people in that city to submit to your will. There is food shortage. They are being cut out from the outside world. The people who are living in Jerusalem in this moment are having their world turned upside down. And so it's a great place to look to say, how do you respond to adversity? How do you become resilient? So I want to keep reading in verse 2. And my first point is this. How do we become resilient? We have to prepare our identity for battle. Look at what takes place here. In verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So I love what's happening here. One, if, if inspired scripture ever refers to you as good-looking, that's a good day, right? Like, I don't know how you get that deal. It's like, yes, how how do I be a part of that? But you have this moment, Daniel and his friends, they're probably about 15, maybe 16 years old in this moment. The city is besieged. They are actually taken captive and moved into Babylon. And they are actually, it says in verse 3, that they were part of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles. So there's high status probably among this group of people, and they are brought in. And Nebuchadnezzar is kind of smart here. He says, instead of just destroying these people, I'm actually going to leverage their gifts and talents. I'm going to train them in the way of the Babylonians, and I am going to use them in my kingdom. I'm going to make them people of Babylon. Now, it's incredible because look at his tactic. He says, he ordered, this is verse 4, he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. 
The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. In other, way, in other words, he was going to reshape their whole entire identity. Now, what is identity? It's our sense of self who you say you are, who you believe yourself to be. It's the inner core of who you are that drives your behavior. I, you know, it's, it's where you, you derive your decision-making. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to take that and I'm going to reshape that. I'm going to change that. I'm going to make you, I'm going I'm to change who you say you are and the way you think. And that is what's happening to us constantly. We are being reshaped. Look at how this takes place. First, he's trying to reshape how they think. It says in verse 4, he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. He says they're going to go on a three-year crash course on Babylonian literature and thought. I'm going to fill their idea with stories and heroes. I'm, we're going to teach them how to speak like us, how to talk like us, how to think like the, us. We are caught in the same battle. We, we are shaped and told how to think through media, through what, just our friends, through the schools that we go to. Our thinking is being reshaped. But look what also he does. He reshapes their worship. In verse 5, the king appoints for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine there's to drink. He says, eat and drink like Babylonians. Now, to us, you're like, that sounds like a great situation, like Thanksgiving feast style. But what's really happening here is he is attacking the, the dietary laws that would have made the Israelites stand out and be unique. If you read through the Old Testament, if you read through the Torah in particular, and you look Uh, Like at books like Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you'll see there's all these commands given about what kind of food the Israelites are to eat. Now, that wasn't to restrict them or just just help them miss out on something. It was there to create worship in their heart, to teach them to stand out, to to show them a way that would glorify God among other peoples. And so they would restrict the way they would eat as an act of worship. And what Nebuchadnezzar says is, let's just throw that out. Why don't you just eat like kings? The way you worship, let's just, yeah, whatever. That's irrelevant now. You are Babylonians. Thirdly, he also gives them new names. Read with me in verse 6. It says, now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, I want you uh, to to see this because their names uh, actually have intense meetings. If you look at this, Daniel, his name means God has judged. Mishael means who is what God is. Hananiah says, Yahweh has been gracious. And Azariah means Yahweh has helped. These are like good Israelite names that uplift the glory and the majesty and the truth about who Yahweh is. But Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I want to reframe 
your, your, your very identity. I want to I give you a new name. Look at verse 7. Then the commander of the officials assigned them new names. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, those names are almost more famous than their original names, but they have deep meanings. It's not an arbitrary name change. Look at what their new names would mean. Belteshazzar means protect the king, specifically the king of Babylon. Meshach means I am despised. Shadrach, I have been made to feel afraid. You're like, that's rough. Abednego, I am a servant of Nebo, one of the Babylonian gods. So what's happening here is a complete reframing of who they are. Now, I share all this with you because if you want to remain resilient, you have to realize and prepare your identity for battle. There is a war for how you think about yourself that's raging right now. We are tempted to define ourselves by our job and what we produce and the status that we have. Or, okay, I'm a family man and I'm a dad and, and these are the things that make me and, and, and I need that to prove myself. I'm a son who is supposed to be successful. My dad went to A&M. His dad went to A&M. I need to go to A&M and I have to prove something. The world wants to tell us how to think how to worship, even how to view our very selves. And we have to realize that there is a battle raging for identity. So what do we do in response to that? We have to secure our identity to Jesus. Now, uh, I've been working over this last year, I've been building a treehouse for my kids in the backyard. Um, And it's not super duper high, because I was like, I don't want to be responsible if they fall and that, right? Like, it's, it's like three or four feet off the ground, uh, but it's cool. Like, there's a slide now, and there's a cargo net, and there's, I went, like, went to Home Depot, bought all the wood, assembled this. Um, but one of the things you have to do, right, besides just making it structurally sound, one of the things you actually have to do is anchor it to the dirt, like, because wind can come and do weird things. Like, it just, it just uplifts it. It's like a sail, and it can lift it. Uh, if you've ever seen this with trampolines, right, it can just like get underneath them and create lift and flip it over. And so you buy these giant like screws that you put down into the dirt several inches into the ground and then you chain it to the bottom so it is anchored to the ground. Now, I tell you that because in our identity, we have to anchor ourselves to the ground, the firm foundation of Jesus as we have sung about already this morning. Now, when I say that, there's three things I I, I mean by that. One... We have to immerse ourselves in the gospel. How do we anchor our identity? We immerse ourselves in the gospel. The story of Scripture, we have to know it inside and out. We have to master it. We have to know what is true about what Jesus has done on our behalf. And whether you have been a believer for 50 years or this is your first time to church in a long time, I want to share the gospel in fullness, right? That we are broken sinners. That it's not us who saves ourselves, but it is Jesus, God himself who became flesh and died in our place. He took on the sins of the world 
the brutality of our sin upon his shoulders. And he was murdered. But what's amazing in the gospel is that he didn't stay dead, but was raised to life, conquering sin, death, Satan, everything that entangles us. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, and as Romans 8 says, he's interceding for us in this moment. And what the Scripture says is that those who place their faith in Jesus and say, Jesus, I cannot on my own be who I'm supposed to be. I need your death and resurrection to cover my sin. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are made right with God in an instant. And regardless of what's happening in our life, we are called sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's the opportunity available to us. If you want to secure your identity to Christ, master that story, repeat it to yourself, internalize it, not just in terms of how do I share this with other people, not just in terms of, okay, like, can I pass a quiz if someone asks me, but let me immerse myself in that story. Where has Jesus covered my sin? Where has Jesus breathed new life into me? Immerse yourself in the gospel story. But secondly, know your part in the story. Part of establishing and rooting our identity in Jesus is saying, I know my part to play. I am a servant of Jesus. And regardless of what's going on right now, I'm going to serve him. I'm going to learn my giftings. I'm going to make it my endeavor to understand how I've been wired. And I'm going to leverage those giftings for the kingdom of God. And as you master the gospel and you master your giftings, you master your own story, you anchor yourself to the ground of Jesus. We have to realize that we are at war. Oh, this is the last thing I want to say about this first point. Ephesians chapter 1 is the, uh, includes the longest sentence in all of Scripture. From verses 3 to 14, Paul focuses all on our identity in Jesus. And he writes a sentence that is 257 words long, which is almost as long as the Gettysburg Address. And there's no commands. There's no imperatives. He just opens the letter and he says, Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, I just want you guys to know who you are. And over and over, he says things like, you are blessed, you have been chosen, you have been redeemed, you have access to the mystery, you have been given an inheritance, you are sealed with the Spirit of God. And he goes on and on and on. And that's not because he needed something to fill, because he had a deadline for a publishing date or something like that. He says, it's so foundational just to know who you are in Christ. He says, I want you to master this identity. Understand what Christ says is to be true of you. Let's move on to our second point. Resolve to take your next faithful step. Look at verse 8 here. It says, but Daniel... He made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine in which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. 
Now, I just want to pause there because it's this jarring step. Everything that's happening, and the text says, you know, Daniel resolves that he would not defile himself. He drew a line in the sand and said, okay, I see what's happening around me. I will not participate in that. Now, what does that mean for us? Again, Daniel is saying, I'm going to remain faithful to my God. Not just, not just for the rest of my life, but just in this moment right here. I'm just going to be faithful to my next step. This is the thing that's in front of me. I don't know what I'm going to do about Babylon or being in exile. I'm just going to remain faithful to this moment right here. To illustrate this, I want, you, I want, I want to bring you back. Me and my wife uh, just celebrated nine years of marriage, January uh, 2nd. So uh, it was fun. It was great. Um, and it made me think about the beginning of our relationship um, and when we're still just dating. And, you know, and I remember the, when I was building up the courage to ask her out on a date for the very first time. Um, and we were both young. We were actually uh, both in high school at this time. So I was, you knew I was super smooth with my words. Actually, no, right? And there was an event at our church. Uh, as an aside, that's a great place to meet people, right? Um, there was an event at our church, and I like, was like talking to my friends. I was like, I think this is going to be the moment. Like, I'm going to do it at this event. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask her to go on a date with me. Um, but I kept getting nervous and scared. Right? I was like, she's really awesome and beautiful. And like, I just, I don't know, like, I, I'm not smooth with my words. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And, and so I made up this plan basically to corner myself. Uh, and this kind of uh, is a nice timestamp. But I told her, I said, hey, I left a CD at my house that I want for this event for this weekend. Right? Yeah, it's your like CDs, the mid 2000s right here. Um, but, and I said, can you come with me to go to, like, we're going to go get the CD. Uh, from my house, and I, that was a lie, right? I just made, I, I didn't have a CD, that was, and they just, me and her in a car, so I was like, now there's, like, we got to talk now, like, I can't just defer, and, and in the car, we're driving, and finally, I get the courage to ask her to go on a date, and she says yes, yes. right, like, and, but it took me, like, almost cornering myself, and just leaving myself no other option except to talk with her and communicate my intentions with her moving forward. Now, when it comes to following Jesus, I tell you that because that is what we need to do as we step out of here. You have to resolve, draw a line in the sand, position yourself where there is no other option to take your next faithful step. Remove distraction and temptation and just say, what's right in front of me? I'm, I'm not going to worry about what's down the road or what's coming or five years from now, 10 years from now. I'm going to resolve today whatever God is asking of me to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful exactly where I am. Now, look at what Daniel does. How does he do this? Look at verse 9. He says, Now God granted Daniel, favor and compassion in the sight of the commander and the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. 
But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Just two observations about how he goes about remaining faithful. One, he actually, he shows respect to the Babylonian commander that's over him. He seeks permission from him. Now, if the, if the Babylonian commander said, no, I'm not going to let you do this, I'm not actually sure how Daniel would have handled that. But in this moment, God gives him favor. And the commander says, okay, like, I'm, I'm open to this, but I don't want you looking bad because it's, it's rough king, right? If you look bad, I die. And Daniel's like, okay, well, put it to the test just for a few days. Let's just see. And, and so you show this respect that Daniel has for the people around him. But he also believes that being obedient to Jesus is worth it. That following the commands that God has set before him is worth it. He says, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And so I'm going to follow him obediently. I believe that God will reward me for that. And I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you're extremely happy with your place in life and you're accomplishing your goals. And you're like, man, like my career is just like upward to the right. And this is really great. And I am so pleased. But if we're honest, I would say a lot of us, most of us are not there. There are things we are facing right now where you're like, what, what is this? And have I hit a dead end? And we worry and stress about the future. And what I think we can learn, how do we remain resilient in the face of that? Whatever comes or unfairness that has come our way, we don't have to worry about one year, two year, three year, 10 years down the road. The call on your life is to be faithful today. What would it look like you, for you to take a, your next step of faithfulness in whatever job, place, class, relationship? What would it look like for you to be faithful, not 10 years from now, but in the moment right now? That's what we're responsible for. I remember when I was about 24, 25 years old, I was not married at this time. Me and Emily were dating, but I was a resident at a church in Dallas, and there was this moment, I had been working there for about a year or two, and I was filling up water, like jugs for, for students. I was, I was working with junior high students, and I was filling this up probably for the hundredth time, right, and cleaning late, you know, like all the youth equipment and all this stuff. I was like cleaning it in the kitchen late at night, and there would be these thoughts that come into my mind, like, what am I doing? with my life. I am a quarter century old. I have a degree from A&M, and here I am cleaning coolers. I'm cleaning pool noodles and kiddie pools at 11 p.m. at a church in Dallas. Like, what, what, have I gone wrong somewhere? And I remember just like, that, like these thoughts would just come in, and it was just like, what, like, did I miss out on something? Am I wasting my potential? I don't feel like I have a lot of influence. I don't feel like I have a lot of uh, upfront like platforms. And I remember in, in that season, the Lord just speaking, saying, hey, 
and just be faithful to where I have you in this moment. Be faithful to the 12 junior high students in your small group. Be faithful to the, the, the four leaders that God has given you influence over at this church. Be faithful to the friends that I've given you. That's all I'm calling you to do right now. So wherever you are, whatever, if you're feeling like, man, like, have I missed something? Man, I'm tempted, I'm coveting, I'm jealous. God is calling you to be faithful in the moment right now. Keep your finger in Daniel chapter 1 and go to Hebrews chapter 11 for a minute. Because there's a whole chapter dedicated to this idea of, hey, in the midst of onslaught, temptation, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of what am I even doing with my life, this call to remain faithful. And Hebrews chapter 11, I won't read the whole thing, but it's just this beautiful passage about the faithfulness of men and women in the Old Testament, most of whom never saw the fruit of their faithfulness in their lifetime. But they just said, I don't understand what's going on. I'm just going to remain faithful today. And I just want to start in verse 32. And look at what the author says. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, and so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom this world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these things, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what had been promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And he ends that chapter just listing off these incredible things, but also these extremely difficult things, and points out continuously they didn't get to see the full fulfillment of the promise that was given to them, but they made the choice to remain faithful where they are. And that's what's called and asked of us today. I want to move to our last point this morning. How do we become resilient? Remember that God is for your good. I just want to read this last part of Daniel chapter 1. So if you can go back there. It's an amazing turn of events that takes place. It says, at the end of the 10 days, verse 15, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths, which is, again, how do you get that inspired statement about you? Who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom, 
Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one, was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So I want to say this because we read that, we're like, cool, remain faithful, identity in Christ. I get to be the king's right-hand man. Like, that, I'm going to name and claim that promise right now. Like, that's not my point. The point is not, well, hey, eventually it'll work out, so keep your head down, work hard. Your good stuff will be coming to you. No, I've worded this point. Remember that God is for your good. This is not a promise of prosperity for faithfulness. There are, again, I've said this several times from the stage, but there are so many examples of faithful men and women in Scripture who were faithful to the end, and yet their life ended in tragedy and death. Stephen, who because of his faith is stoned by the Jewish leadership, just at the start of his like high potential ministry, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, this is not a promise that, man, I get to interpret dreams, so I'm just like faithful enough? Like, that's awesome. The point of this passage, I think, this section, is that God is for your good. He's not malicious in his intent towards you or what he's allowing you to go through. God cares about you individually. He is for your good. I just want you to think about Daniel's journey here. He, like, he finishes this moment. He's, he's trained in Babylon for three years, the text says, and, you know, eating vegetables and, and nuts and all these kinds of things, and he's out of his home country. He's, he's coming of age, right? He's probably now 19, 20 in a foreign land that he didn't get to choose to live there, and God's hand is in his life and gives him wisdom where he needs it, gives him knowledge where he needs it, and directs him very particularly to this spot where he is an advisor to the king of Babylon. And if you even fast forward through the rest of the book of Daniel, right, in chapter 2, he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he's given even more power. Look at 248, you don't have to turn there, but he is made ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, at the end of chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know this story potentially, the fiery furnace, they're thrown in and remain faithful to God. What I love before that, they don't say, like, God's going to save us. They say, God's going to save us, but if he doesn't, we will not bow down to you. They realize there's no promise for prosperity. That's just what God had for these four men. But at the end of chapter 3, because of Daniel's faithfulness, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faithfulness, Nebuchadnezzar actually issues that in the all of Babylon, he bans any offense towards Yahweh, the God of the Jews, in the kingdom of Babylon. And, and so just think about that. Daniel is in exile, working in obscurity. 
God rises him up at the right time and positions him to create safety for the worship of Yahweh in a foreign pagan kingdom. What's even more amazing, we don't know this for sure, but contemporaries of Daniel include Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They are carrying out their ministries in different parts of the kingdom. But I have to think that a proclamation that bans anything offensive said about Yahweh in the kingdom of Babylon surely helped Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Surely helped them hear about what's happening among us in Babylon to hear and to spread their own writings to protect and preserve the very scriptures we have in our hands. I say all that because God is at work even in the exile of Babylon. He is for the good of the people of Israel. And he's caring for them and positioning and protecting them. Now what does that mean for us? God is for your good. So whatever is happening right now, God has not forgotten you. You have not slipped off his plans. You have not fallen out of his sight. God is inviting all of us to join him in what he's doing in this world. And at times, maybe that means places of influence. Probably more often that means working in obscurity and never receiving full credit in this lifetime. And it means hardship. But we know and rest in the fact that God is for our good, orchestrating the billions of things that are happening in this world so that all people might come to know him. When we realize that, rest in that, understand his character towards us, it makes us resilient in the face of whatever's happening. So what do we do with all this? First off, I just want to recap what we've said. How do we become people who are resilient? We prepare our identity for battle. We have to identify that we are at war. We have to anchor ourselves to Jesus. And then we resolve to be faithful where God has placed us. And we understand and remember that God is for our good. So an application, I just have a couple questions that I want to pose as we start this new year. Are you a person with resilient faith? When we think about that, would, would you characterize yourself in that way? What made you answer that way? When you think of your identity, what comes to mind? What are the things that primarily shape not just your view of yourself, but your decision-making? Where is God asking you to be faithful right now? And what are ways even this week we can remind ourselves of God's goodness towards us? And so what I want to do is just create a space, maybe just for a moment. And, and just, I want you guys to meditate on these questions. And then I'm going to close this out here in just a minute. So just take a moment Reflect on these questions quietly. <laughs> 